Hello, my name is Richard Wright, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the British Journal of Sociology. It's my pleasure to welcome you tonight to the annual BJS lecture. Jillian Stevens, the journal's North American-based editor, will actually introduce tonight's speaker, but before I turn the floor over to her, I just need to make a few brief announcements. First, I need to point out the exits for you. Uh, you'll recognize them. They're those things you came in through just a second ago. Uh, second, tonight's lecture is being audio-taped. Uh, and it's uh, hope that, that all being well, uh, that that will be available on the event's website and also on the BJAS website. Please turn off your mobile phones as they tend to compromise our audio taping efforts if they, if they ring during the talk. Finally, there will be a reception uh, follow, immediately following the lecture. I'm not supposed to say where the reception will take place until afterwards, but it's actually going to take place just outside of this room. So you'll recognize that too. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Jillian Stevens, who will introduce tonight's speaker and share the lecture. Jillian? First, let me say welcome to the 2011 annual lecture sponsored by the British Journal of Sociology. As Richard mentioned, I'm Gillian Stevens. I'm an editor of the journal, and I'm professor of sociology at the University of Alberta in Canada. My residence in Canada, my dual Canadian and American citizenship, and my work for the British Journal of Sociology is a small example, I think, of how the old assumptions about nationality, residence, citizenship, and individual rights, such as the right to work for, another, for an institution in another country, um, are no longer unidimensional. And this is one of the many reasons I'm very pleased today to be introducing this year's BJS speaker, Dr. Yasmin Zoisel, whose research has focused on the complex and changing relationships between citizenship and individual rights. But before I turn to the pleasant task of introducing her and saying a little bit about her, I have been told that I have to remind you or at least those of you who are part of the new technological generation, that the hashtag for the journal, in, in case you wish to contribute to the, excuse me, ongoing comments on tonight's lecture is pound sign L-S-E-B-J-S. And now, the big part of the introduction, let me say something about Dr. Zoisel. She has earned her doctoral degree from Stanford University in the United States, but has worked around the world. She's worked as an academic fellow or as a visiting scholar in places such as the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, the Juan Marsh, March Institute in Madrid, Spain, Hitotsu Bashi University in Tokyo, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and as the Willy Brandt guest professor at the Institute for Studies of Migration, Diversity, and Welfare in Sweden. She obviously brings a huge amount of international experience to tonight's talk. Currently, she's a senior lecturer at the University of Essex. She's published numerous articles in academic journals, but she's probably best known for her two books, which are titled Limits of Citizenship, Migrants and Postnational Membership in Europe, and the second book, The Nation, Europe, and the World textbooks and curricula in transition. She's currently involved in two major research projects, a comparative and longitudinal study of the changing concepts of good citizen and good society in Europe and Asia, including 
uh, China, Japan, and Korea. And her second major research project is a comparative study of the life course and self-projections of immigrant origin youth in European cities. She has funding from numerous um, organizations, including the Economic and Social Research Council, Lever Holmes Trust, the British Academy, and the Hong Kong Research Grant Council. The title of her talk tonight is Citizenship, Immigration, and the European Social Project, Rights and Obligations of Individuality. She, I have written here that she will be speaking for about 40 minutes, um, but she told me she's going to take 43. <laughs> After her succinctly um, <laughs> measured talk, she will be taking questions from the audience, and you are allowed 15 minutes. <laughs> After that, we will be having a reception. Dr. Soisel? Thank you very much, William, for this um, introduction. And I would like to thank the British uh, Journal of Sociology for the invitation to deliver this um, lecture this evening. It's really a great pleasure um, to be standing here in front of you. About 10 years ago or so, um, when I first moved to Britain, I was invited to give another public lecture, um, another annual lecture of another journal, and I won't mention names just in case they are competitors, um, but that also took place at LSE, and that was in the old place, the old theater. So now we are in this um, new, uh, I had not been here, so it's new to me. But I'm happy to be making the round, so. But for tonight's lecture, um, I was really torn whether I should present something from my ongoing ESRC project on the comparisons between Europe and East Asia. That's also about citizenship. It doesn't involve immigration as much, but it could. In which case, if I did, I would have had colorful uh, PowerPoints for you, with pictures from Japanese, Chinese, and Korean um, school books, and also some juicy quotations from interviews with educators. But I decided to do something different. Instead, uh, today's lecture, will uh, revisit one of my previous research topics, immigration and citizenship, and bring in another element to it, the European welfare state developments, or I focus on the European social project. Um, and by social project, I simply refer to a set of policy, legal, and institutional arrangements that affect social citizenship. And these arrangements um, and, the, and the underlying social arguments, they're the subject of study for both uh, welfare scholars and also citizenship scholars. But somehow these two literatures don't speak to each other as much as they should, I think. So I try in this uh, lecture, and we will see how it goes. T.H. Um, Marshall, one of the most influential commentators on the topic, he sees citizenship as a corrective to the injustices caused by the capitalist market by incorporating working classes into the national contract. Writing in the late 1940s, he suggested that social rights constituted the inevitable capstone of citizenship development and a unifying force. 
So entitlements and protections guaranteed by the welfare state would prevent social and economic exclusions that civil and politic rights, political rights simply on their accord could not. So, and, and this would uh, consequently as well ensure uh, social cohesion and solidarity as well as productive economy and market. European welfare states successfully followed this formula for the most part of the post-war period. In the last couple of decades, however, certain developments have unsettled this formula. For one, um, the very meaning of work and worker on which the welfare state based, it has changed. Uh, the lifetime full employment is less and less a reality for large, uh, large sections of labor market participants. Uh, flexibility, risk, precariousness, these are the defining elements of working life. The welfare state itself has gone through um, transformations as well, increasingly moving away from a system of passive benefits, as it's called, to social investment in human capital. These developments are coupled with an emphasis in education on active citizenship active citizenship which envision participatory individuals who are adaptable in an increasingly globalized society and ready to contribute at different, you know, at local, national and transnational levels. The emergent European social project draws on a realignment between these strands, work, social investment and active participation. And my lecture will consider the implications of this realignment for the immigrant populations in Europe in particular, and for the conceptions of citizenship in general. In the following time, I will first discuss the emerging precepts of the new social project as it transpires in national and European frameworks, and as it interacts with immigration or current immigration politics or policies. I will then consider the citizenship model that underlines this project, a citizenship model that privileges the value of individuality and transformative capacity as a collective good, the transformative capacity of individuality as a collective good. Although frequently associated with neoliberalism and its entrenchment in social and political imaginaries, I will argue that to be able to assess the full extent of this model, we need to consider the broader trends in the post-World War II period, particularly the globally institutionalized human rights regime. And I will conclude by briefly engaging the conversations in the sociology of rights that juxtapose the globally sanctioned human rights with nation-state-based citizenship as regard their promise for furthering effective justice. So that's a lot to do, actually, and I'll get on with it, and we will see what I do in 43 minutes. <laughs> Historically, it's uh, debatable whether um, there was ever single a European social model. Actually, uh, welfare scholars would clearly um, argue that there was never. But when it's described, I mean, it's it's usually the contours are usually drawn vis-a-vis -vis the lesser American social state. So some skeletal version can be described as the male uh, breadwinner Keynesian welfare state of the 
post-1945 decades. But this model already came under uh, stress from the 1970s on, and, but especially from the 1990s on, a much more visible transformation occurred, partly in response to the intensified demographic and social challenges, uh, aging population, mass entry of women into labor markets, and uh, all that, but also clearly the neoliberal and free trade infused policy choices that characterize the period. The extent and nature of these changes are still debated among uh, welfare scholars. However, it's now more or less agreed that there is uh, the, the 21st century faces a new settlement of, of the European social model. This new project is observable in a number of policy developments at European Union and national levels, which point to a shift away from providing state to the one which uh, seeks to enhance self-activity or uh, mobilization into paid work among citizens. But it's also a shift from social benefits to you know, social investment. This, in, in policy, for example, we find uh, labor market activation schemes. This is tr mostly through benefit redesigning and also the building and maintenance of human capital, all kind of um, focus on the building and maintenance of human capital through skill training, for example, and improvement programs, lifelong learning, uh, raising standards in schools, particularly math, language, and uh, science subjects. These are uh, important um, reforms in education towards this. At the same time, school education puts great emphasis on developing uh, children's capabilities as active, productive, and responsible young persons. So those of you with uh, young children should know, in the UK, for example, um, introduced by the last Labour government, the national guidelines, guidelines for children under five. It set, sets 500 developmental milestones just for under five, and, and 69 skills as well specified, including IT targets. This is only for you know, under five, so there's a lot of skills to go through in life. I mean, you start early on. The architecture of the new social project was um, sealed with the European Union's Lisbon strategy in 2000. But as a model, it has been clearly around um, in transnational agendas of the EU or the OECD for a long time before that, I mean, last couple of decades. And it's already been implemented in varying national contexts, albeit at varying speed and, and, and different route. Scandinavian countries, for example, um, in line with their more generous welfare tradition or provisions, existing provisions, they still hold on to some conception of the universal with high spending uh, on active labor market policies and childcare. On the other opposite, uh, Britain, a um, historically more liberal welfare state, deregulation has been the main route for reform with an increasing uh, move towards targeted social assistance and also skill building, again, very importantly, through national standards. So as such, already this is noted by the welfare uh, scholars that the new social project and the associated policy reforms does not necessarily mean the dismantling of the European welfare states. The state, its provisions, uh, has not shrunk, even with closer integration with the markets. However, its investments financial and moral, are in a different path now, with a new focus. So European states converge around a new repertoire of social citizenship, which 
reflects a change in its constitutive logic and the moral language of justice. So despite uh, variations in implementations, and I will suggest that there are two premises, or, or the new social project departs from two premises. First, the recoupling of work with welfare. Clearly, in the original form, uh, work had been central to the welfare state and, and the policy, and being a worker qualified the uh, good citizen. The recent policy calls renewed this alliance and emphasized the value of employment for the social project, but in the new framework, um, work is no longer implicated as a socially organized condition, rather it's as the, the individual positioning in the labor market as expressed in human um, capital conceptions. The second premise is um, the decoupling of social cohesion from social justice. In, in T.H. Marshall's formulation, and also I would say for much of the history of the European welfare state, the economic security provided by the state to a large extent, not totally, but to a large extent equalized opportunities for uh, participation in common social and political projects, which in turn facilitated solidarity and social cohesion. Yeah. In the new European project, the connection between social justice and social cohesion has weakened. While social cohesion is primed as a goal, it falls in the main onto an increasingly moralized and incentivized individual citizen and less on the state. Okay, now I would like to reflect on these premises as I focus my comments on the implications for immigrants in Europe. First, the relationship between work and welfare. Here, now, I would like to quote from the Swedish Minister of Finance, Anders Borg. He is regarded as the architect of um, the renewed um, Swedish model, and it's a very clear statement of this new orientation, so I would like to um, quote in length its worth. Um, I'm quoting now. The government's employment policy is ultimately based on the understanding that the opportunity to work has a value in a broader sense. By offering more people the opportunity to move from exclusion to employment, there will also be more people who can provide a livelihood for themselves and their families. Having a job affects one's sense of well-being. In the workplace, one is part of a larger social community and is capable of achievement development and a sense of participation. Without a job, the risk of financial, social and health problems increases. For the individual and for welfare in general, the value of work is fundamental. A policy for increased employment and less exclusion is thus a moral imperative, not just a financial necessity." End of quote. It's hard to object such reasoning. I mean, it's clearly the old scientifically supported this statement. But here is the dilemma. Being unemployment, um, unemployed is detrimental in the long run. Shown again, you know, all kind of uh, research shows this. Locking individuals into an outsider position. However, most jobs at the entry level are not the type of type to affect social mobility. So many are actually entrapped permanently in inferior opportunities. So, and and you know, this is now um, argued widely, but also in the work of Saskia Sassen, 
the integrated global economic order, I mean, it encourages this kind of dual employment markets supported by highly structured migrant labor flows. Yeah. The internationalized economy involves not only the highly lucrative finance and IT sectors, you know, biotech companies, specialized services, but it also supports a whole spectrum of routine, labor-intensive um, industries such as health, for example, security, hospitality, uh, catering, care, and construction. So a large proportion of these jobs in these services are poorly paid, poor quality jobs, and often performed by the weaker participants of labor markets, youth, women, and immigrants who constitute sizable groups in the population. So a general upskilling of the workforce, which happens bolstered by internationalization and specialization, it does not guarantee that the low paying and the low quality jobs will disappear. And while the current migration policy regimes encourage and valorize the mobility of high school migrants, the contribution of the other migrants, the other migrants who fulfill these jobs at the very bottom, then it's not simply you know, recognized. And uh, you know, because of the way that um, the immigration uh, regulations or legislation is uh, structured right now, for example, in the UK, the point system, but also in many other countries in Europe, which have specialized legislation to ease recruitment of high-skilled um, high labor. EU itself has introduced a blue card system, stealing from, I think, US green card, but um, to have the, exactly the same kind of uh, purpose for non-EU high-skilled immigrants. But again, for the other immigrant uh, or the migrant uh, worker, um, uh, the low-skilled, the unskilled, the care sector, I would like to um, give an example. It's quite illuminating. The demographic and social changes in Europe, you know, again, I mentioned the aging population, again, the increased female labor market participation uh, created this kind of demand clearly for child and elderly care. But it has meant really um, an expansion of uh, domestic and help and care services. While, you know, if you look across um, welfare states in, in Europe, or, uh, the organization and provision differs from country to country in terms of the care work. But it's still, I mean, almost um, across Europe, it's becoming a migrant work. As other parts of the world, it's not only Europe, but it's rapidly becoming, care work is becoming a uh, migrant work. In the last decade, uh, cash, uh, cash provision or tax credit towards home care and domestic help have been introduced in several countries, I mean, including Finland, uh, Netherlands, Sweden, but also UK and France, Austria. This has encouraged the development of low-cost formal and informal, in certain cases, uh, migrant labor markets. And indeed, uh, female migrant workers are overrepresented in these kind of, in this lower tiers of um, the, the sector in, in all type of European states. In Sweden, for example, you will find that I mean, it's, the recruitment is through state uh, agencies or large private firms, but again, the community care services, for example, account for the high shares of foreign employment. In the UK, um, in 2008, 21% of all home cares and care assistance, assistance uh, working in England, they were foreign born. 
I mean, it, it's a large number. Again, it's disproportional to the percentage of immigrants or, or foreigners in the country. In Spain, even higher, uh, migrant workers represent between one half and two-thirds of regular employment in the sector. And the great uh, majority of these are from um, Latin America, but also from Eastern Europe. Yeah. So while social services, and in general care um, in particular, it's one of the most prospering um, in Europe as an employment sector, it is expanding under conditions of sharp segmentation. So gendered and ethnicized low status, low wages, precarious employment conditions, lack of career opportunities, they characterize the sector. This is the, um, the way that uh, the sector is um, expanding. Clearly, such jobs do not have the transformative function, neither participatory nor integrative uh, for the individual and society as a whole, as envisioned by uh, Mr. Borg, but also by the European Social Project. So the present question for the European Project is not simply that people are not employed, that's part of it, but also that the employment does not necessarily mean improvement of skills, pay, and equal treatment. European Union's own progress with regard to the Lisbon agenda and particularly on this, it's, reveals quite um, disappointing results. So according to the two uh, 2009 uh, report of the Social Protection Committee, this is um, between 2000 and 2007, employment rates in the EU indeed increased from 62% to 66%. On the other hand, the positive impact of including more people in the labor market was uh, mitigated by the precarious forms of jobs. So according to, again, the same report, even after controlling for differences in education and experience, atypical workers turned out to be generally paid less per hour, and these were not jobs for stepping stones um, toward better jobs. So again, women, young, and migrant, migrant workers disproportionately suffer from these trends. Let me um, turn to the second premise now, um, the decoupling of social justice from social cohesion. Social cohesion um, is one of the primary social objectives of the EU Lisbon strategy, but it's also referenced um, conspicuously in national and European policy instruments. Clearly for us, the you know, social scientists, the term means different things and it has diverse understandings, but in policy circles, it broadly refers to a sense of commitment and desire and uh, capacity to live together in some harmony. Inclusion, belonging, uh, participation, these are all matters commonly addressed under the rubric of social cohesion. And particularly as regards immigration and immigrants, the term resonates urgency. In the course of um, the 2000s, citing concerns about declining social cohesion, a rather zealous agenda of immigrant integration has gained momentum across Europe. Several European countries introduced legislation making integration a prerequisite for residency and naturalization. Those who are accepted to the country on permanent basis are required to attend integration courses and pass language tests. 
in some cases, you know, access to social benefits, for example, is also linked to these uh, attendance to these classes or or, or, or taking the test, and non-compliance can accrue sanctions. Citizenship tests, for example, long practice in the traditional immigration countries. It's now um, administered in a number of European countries. The uh, migration security nexus in the context of a heightened uh, preoccupation with terrorism and urban riots, again after 2001, to a large extent dictates the urgency assigned to integration and social cohesion. Integration language also prefers a way to reclaim national boundaries in a climate where electoral opinion is clearly adverse to immigration and where right-wing populism is relentless. On the other hand, these immediate political imperatives and the much exercised uh, nation rhetoric, both in public and policy debates, do not necessarily explain the underlying logic of the integration policy agenda. Indeed, uh, despite their symbolic comment, when you look at the citizenship test and integration courses and their content, they do not really reveal anything distinctive about the particularities of the nation. Of course, there are questions about the flag, there are questions about the national anthem, there are questions, you know, occasional questions about the national poet, always. Um, but there's not much about the nation. Systematic surveys of the content, of their content, find that the largest category of questions actually address the notions of individual rights and democracy. The history questions are in the main geared towards capturing the present day of the country and Europe. The questions to appraise values are primarily related to the rights of the individual, such as civic freedoms and the rights of the um, underprivileged sections of the society, women, disabled. Knowledge of democratic institutions um, and legal structures, they occupy a prominent place in these tests in anticipation of a right-bearing individual fluent in a world of tax offices, schools, uh, labor markets, courts. So integration is conveyed in these tests and instruments, different instruments. It's not a nation-centered project as such. It's not posed as a process of confirming or furthering national collectivity and identity. In its place, the trust is on the individual immigrants' capacities and efforts to take part in the rights and institutions offered in the system. So potential immigrants are expected to prove their worth and fit as anticipated by these uh, new entry and residency regulations. But citizenship, and, and, or, or residency for that matter, is earned on the basis of who can contribute, who can be productive. In that sense, integration acquires a new purpose, the purpose of achieving social cohesion in the society driven by active, participatory, and productive individuals. And as such, I think there is a great continuum in the underlying logic of this immigrant integration agenda and the European social project. Not unlike the activation and social investment policies, integration agenda also burdens the individual immigrant and the responsibility of, um, with the responsibility of belonging and integrating. They both prescribe the individual 
not as much the state, is the main bearer of, the social, of social cohesion. And by so doing, they also both depart radically from the original template of social citizenship. Throughout the 20th century, as citizenship and social um, justice ideas coupled, European states institutionalized forms of individual security through progressive um, distributive welfare arrangements. Solidarity and feelings of belonging were byproducts. They followed as more and more the excluded were brought into the collective body of citizenry through the extension of rights and provisions. This historical link between redistribution and solidarity, redistribution identity, and the very institutional arrangements that ensured social cohesion is overlooked in the current European policy frameworks. And as the link between social justice and social cohesion is severed, a highly moralized agenda finds its way into the public debates and policy with increasing push for individual responsibility to seize opportunities uh, to contribute. And as outsiders, immigrants are additionally burdened in this framework. They are asked to demonstrate even more. So at this point, we might want to ask what kind of citizenship <coughs> model does the new European social project aspire? And I want to further the argument that the new social project indeed exposes a transformation in the constituent elements of good citizenship and its moral language of justice. What underlines this transformation is the value assigned to individuality and its transformative capacities. And by individuality, I mean the constitution of individual as a proactive project. Not to be confused with a free-running individualism, this individuality is highly scripted and expansively institutionalized um, across various domains of society. The individual constitutes the target of much legal and policy regulation through which collective provisions are in redefined as individual opportunities and choice. And in this template, individuals are not only the agents of change instead of the state, or not as much as the, um, more than the state, they also constitute the basic unit of moral concern instead of the society of citizens with a shared fate. Several people already commented on this shift to individuals in policy language and instruments, um, stressing the neoliberal currents that underline it, and just to name some uh, of the cogently argued positions. Peggy Summers, for example, Margaret Summers prefers the term market fundamentalism, she uses the term, to denote the unchallenged credibility of the market as the arbiter of moral authority, shifting risk away from government and corporate responsibility onto the individual. Nicholas Rose elaborated on neoliberal governmentality, which relies on the self-regulating and enterprising subject rather than a citizen with claims on the state. Christian Jopke has offered the term repressive liberalism, pointing to a changing balance in the liberal uh, contract, tilting away from individual rights to individual obligations. Now, I concur with these scholars and the general view in the social science literature that uh, it's true that the, since the 1990s, 
the penetration of neoliberal thinking in European social and political imaginary has you know, it had significant consequences for the relationship between the state and the individual. However, and this is a big however, I'm not convinced that this is the complete picture. The centering of the legal and policy frameworks on individual capabilities and the associated obligations is not simply or singly a doing of the neoliberal agenda or its illiberal politics. Although often collapsed into one another, the profusely expanded individual took root before and without neoliberal economic or political imperatives. Individual autonomy, um, creativity, self-realization, participation, lifelong learning, these are ideas now which are very closely associated with neoliberalism, but they have had their career in the transnational scene for a long time, promoted by the likes of the UNESCO and the Council of Europe, and by the expertise hosted in a variety of international um, non-governmental uh, and governmental agencies. It would be instructive to isolate the broader set of trends in the post-war period that have emboldened and sanctified the individual and her actorhood across a range of sites. And clearly, I mean, this, this is a point uh, long labored in Ulrich Beck's influential writing, but also in the long-term um, empirical research program of the Stanford Institutionals Group, um, John Meyer and his colleagues, my work is closely associated with that program. But I want to mention one indicative um, development uh, of, of which I see important in this whole uh, development. And I will mention the global intensification of the discourse and instruments of human rights, which onset worldwide, uh, worldwide liberal, again, not to be confused with neoliberal transformations. 1960s, 1970s witnessed the human rights inspired struggles of women, ethnic, racial, and sexual minorities. These substantially uh, challenged the state-centric and authoritarian governing frames while strengthening individual freedoms. In Europe, given its intimate history with fascism, human rights developments took a much more transnational form, loosening the nation's moral grip on citizenship. And the Cold War in many ways facilitated this codification on human rights across the board. But the institutionalization of human rights at national and transnational levels meant the increasing recognition of universal qualities as opposed to ascriptive ones, such as nationality, ethnicity, race, age, gender. And as I, I, this is the part that I've shown in my own work that these kind of universalistic conventions and understandings and uh, and struggles has been consequential, uh, consequential in the. Um, inclusion of immigrants into a range of membership rights and institutions in the post-war Europe, even when they were not part of the national citizenry or national imagery. So the right-bearing autonomous and active individual, I mean, in other parts uh, or in other fields, in education, for example, it's a very strong presence. The equality of humans and societies um, the idea has made its way as cognitive and normative stances into the European educational uh, circles since the 1960s. Progressive pedagogies of self-centered teaching, critical thinking, creativity, problem solving, these have been equally promoted in the same circles um, as early as the 1970s. 
So over time, a citizenship model that tones down the national character and the national collective and extols a globally aware, democratic, active, and engaged individual has been adopted in school curricula and teaching. And that kind of model is very, very strongly present in, in educational spheres. Human rights education, which is now part of school curriculum across a range of uh, countries, it stipulates uh, that children should not only learn their rights and the rights of others, but also be prepared to be active promoter and claimants of rights. So these are the kind of um, different uh, areas that we can think of that, that active individual made its way to the uh, social and political images. And indeed, I think that's the important argument that the neoliberally charged reforms and policies have diffused globally once they were cast as models promising collective goods and once they appropriated the very language and ideals of individual actorhood. Highly legitimated at transnational levels with the backing of professional expertise um, at non- and uh, intergovernmental organizations, the able and empowered individual is now as indispensable for success, successful societies and democracies as for successful economies. The new European social project strongly endorses the individuality and active participation of citizens as the route to socially cohesive and inclusive societies. But by championing the right-bearing, autonomous, and able individual, this is really the claim of the project and also, I mean, it's, it's part of the whole um, development of the project. The project extends the moral and legal boundaries, boundaries of participation, again, beyond ascriptive limitations. On the other hand, as I've tried to argue, the project fails terribly at addressing the factors and conditions. Oh, sorry that entrench differential capacities and the very obstacles to the parity of individuality. As the current global economic regime radically exacerbates resource and status inequalities, chipping away at the social safety nets and the conditions of effective participation, the promise of the social project grows less convincing. The emerging fault lines do not simply cut through without but also within Europe. It's not only the non-European migrant that's left out, but also the lesser Europeans, those who are unable to exercise and live up to the higher form of life of being productive, those who are stuck in secondary or temporary jobs and not able to climb the social ladder, those who face ethnic and religious discrimination in their schooling, in skill training programs, in job applications. And again, these are not only non-Europeans but the second, third, sometimes even fourth generation immigrant Europeans and increasingly East Europeans. So, so far the European social project has not promised a satisfactory delivery to the very tension between the transformative capacities of the individuality and realizing and maintaining social justice. The concluding section of my lecture um, addresses the relationship between rights and social justice. And I try to do that by engaging the recent debates in sociology of rights 
that revisit the relationship between citizenship and human rights and their potential for social justice. Um, given time, because I promised 43 minutes, I won't be able to elaborate on this, but very, very briefly, in much of the sociological treatment, I mean, there is the juxtaposition of um, human rights and citizen, the universal and natural character, cosmopolitanism associated human rights with the more particularistic and political um, nation state associated citizenship rights. That's the kind of um, juxtaposition. Um, I won't be able to elaborate on this, but I do object this implied dichotomy or the duality between human rights and citizenship implicated in these debates. And my objection is not normative, but um, empirically based. The dichotomy, I argue, is not tenable. And, and partly this is uh, to do with the trajectory of both uh, set of rights in the post-war period. Despite their different philosophical underpinnings, both set of rights, uh, I worked on this, I showed this, um, I, or I wrote on this in various uh, writings, uh, that they have moved together in the post-war period. Much of their practice had been tangled in struggles for various groups of rights and for various groups of claimants. Extensive rights for women, children, elderly, sexual and cultural minorities, as well as non-citizens, were put into European social democracies as these rights were codified as human rights in national and international conventions. That's, I mean, this empirical trajectory and converging trajectory is one reason why I do find uh, the dichotomy difficult. But the second, because it is true that many, many of the citizenship struggles are actually also uh, uh, fought on the basis of human rights. And many, many, what we understand as citizenship rights are redefined as human rights. But the second and maybe more important point, and that would bring me to the uh, very conclusion, it's the, regarding the nature of rights in general. Um, again, Margaret Summers, she insightfully reminds us that Rights exist at multiple registers as normative aspirations, as codification and doctrine, and as mechanisms of, uh, and institutions of enactment. So as rights, both human rights and citizenship rights uh, chart along these three registers, right? And that's, I think, where T.H. Uh, Marshall should re-enter into our discussions. For T.H. Marshall, rights in themselves did not have any inherent quality. Rights, he argued, are means for inclusion, which could be guaranteed only with their grounding in effective institutions, effective membership institutions, not necessarily nationally defined membership institutions. In other words, the very social and institutional arrangements in which the very possibility of a right exists. And it's exactly these, these arrangements that are under threat today. And this is exactly the challenge that the European social project is facing. And for that, T.H. Marshall's legacy is as relevant today as ever. Thank you. I'd like to invite members of the audience to take an opportunity to ask Dr.
Dr. Seisel a question? Please make sure that you're talking to the roving microphone. Yeah, um, it was interesting that you referred to um, to uh, this new kind of citizenship as a governmentality of uh, neoliberal because um, like two months ago I heard a lecture by um, Ayan Kaya who, um, who argued that um, multiculturalism itself is a form of neoliberal governmentality. So um, on the other hand, um, there is Craig Kaloon um, from the University of New York, who argues um, exactly because these um, uh, lesser or, like, let's say, the the, uh, the decrease of this concept of nationhood, um, social rights and um, social obligations have like uh, been dealigned. So, uh, uh, sorry, what is your opinion about um, Greg Loon's um, argument? that this cosmopolitan idea of uh, global justice um, is um, basically a danger for um, the already gained um, social rights of citizens. So because most of the social rights nowadays um, have been uh, gained in like the, uh, the late 19th century where uh, like um, um, different social movements incorporated their uh, equality claims um, by uh, nationalist discourse. This was, would be my question. Mm -hmm. um, two different things here, actually, which I would like to talk both about. I mean, okay, start with Kaufman, easier. Um, the global, I mean, human rights as global justice and cosmopolitanism, and I don't want to um, create any kind of uh, controversy here, but I think the cosmopolitanism language is not helping sometimes, partly because I don't think that human rights are always about global justice. Human rights as practice are usually justice in the very defined, uh, about very defined struggles <coughs> as they relate to local, national spheres. These are you know, human rights struggles or sometimes even citizenship struggles which are defined. I mean, Latin America is one of them. That, that citizenship struggles are defined within this kind of... Uh, I mean, when you say global justice, for example, we, you, of course it's very difficult to think about the whole globe and create solidarities about that. But most of the time, you know, the practice is not about that. The practice is very much about making claims on sometimes nationally bounded, sometimes maybe the EU bounded uh, institutions of education, health, uh, different levels that you can, or, or, or spheres you can be. Making claims on those, but referring to human rights, but not necessarily creating a global justice as such. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, I, I, you know, no one would argue against the idea that uh, when the social rights were first introduced, they were clearly nation-state bonded, and they were clearly, uh, they went through the politics of nation-state as such. They, it created different kind of uh, coalitions in different kind of uh, trajectories to create these rights. But, you know, 
we're not talking about that period any longer. And many of the social rights, as we, I mean, they are talked about as human rights, you know, defined as human rights. So that's the component part. Multiculturalism as neoliberal governmentality. I, I, I mean, I don't know what um, the point about that one is, but um, yeah. I, um, I think this argument uh, was that um, uh, through um, <coughs> through um, uh, talking about culture mm -hmm. as the main cleavages, um, like a European uh, politicians. <coughs> about multiculturalism quite puzzling for myself, uh, partly because I, you know, when I look and I, when I uh, looked at different countries, the way that I answer multiculturalism, but, uh, but maybe blame it on my you know, more uh, US trained mentality, I don't see multiculturalism ever applied in Europe. I mean, it was never a policy as such in Europe. You know, no matter what, of course, there were several cultural uh, provisions extended to immigrants, you know, because equality of you know, religious equality. Many, many uh, provisions were given Muslim, other kind of uh, whatever the religion you can think of, that they could clearly exercise their religious practices and all that, but not on the basis of multiculturalism. These were all part of the whole development in the post-war that you cannot discriminate individuals on the basis of your different practices of religion. I mean, that was this was never in in, in Europe that the countries that are always given example, uh, Netherlands and Sweden, and I will say one word about Britain in a second. But Netherlands and 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 Sweden, I mean, you know, these are countries in 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 the Netherlands the main extension of white was through the whole understanding of polarization that the, the way that immigrants organized in the Netherlands was through their ethnic associations but pretty much following or, or extending that polarization that existed in the society because they didn't know what else to do. I mean states cannot create new kind of you know, imaginaries. They really rely on what they have. This is what happened in Sweden. Sweden is a corporately associated society. So when immigrants first came, they didn't know what to do. They, the state, helped them to organize around their nationalities in this case because they couldn't figure out what else. But Sweden is 90% associated society. Yeah? So the idea that Swedish state gave some funding or, or helped them to organize became multiculturalism. But it wasn't. I mean, there was no sense that you know, these groups of people should create the same kind of multicultural policies that Canada had and uh, Australia in that sense as well. So there was no official multiculturalism. So I find that a bit problematic to discuss. But it is amazing that all these politicians now 
deny that, I mean, or, or, or they blame multiculturalism. What they're really talking about is the diversity of populations. It's not the multiculturalism policy as such, but it's the existence of different kind of people. If you have different kind of people, clearly they will continue to do some of the things that they were doing back home. They're not gonna change immediately. Or maybe they will never change now because we also think that people should have similar kind of rights to practice their religion, to practice uh, their cultural practice, but it's on the basis of always individuals, not as a group. So I, I want to clarify that. I don't know if this was a um, response to your question, but I actually wanted to take that opportunity to make that multiculturalism point. Thank you. I'm not, a soci I'm not a sociologist. I'm an immigration lawyer. Um, you made an observation that uh, uh, European legislation, in fact, what I started to think about, the European human rights law causes individual nations to lose their grip on their own control, which I think is very, very true it, in my field of work. It's um, the uh, the uh, human rights law which comes from Europe is in continuous conflict with the British immigration rules and my job is all about that. Um, there was another comment you made which was that uh, the testing for citizenship was about uh, institutions, society, um, but not, was not nation-centered, which I find uh, quite interesting because the testing for um, citizenship, life in the UK test, is uh, really a, a, a slightly farcical exercise in, in passing an exam. Um, and it, if you say, well, if you criticize it because it's not nation-centered, um, I think that's fair enough, but nations, nationalism itself is, is if you like, a no-program idea when, it, when you come down to it. It doesn't, it doesn't really exist, and I think you're chasing something, if you, if you are chasing it, I'm not saying you are, but I think if you try to chase it, you are chasing something which is actually vacuous in itself. Uh, all you can do is just put people through a test to see if they're good at passing exams. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm chasing it. I, mean, that's, um, I did chase it in the US. I'm an American citizen, so I had to take the exam. But uh, listen, I mean, the US, it's much more about the nation as such compared to the, um, the life in the UK test. I mean, life in the UK test is very interesting. But I think... I, I, you know, it's different than the German test, for example. I did the German test, not, not for uh, taking the nationality, but I did that. I, I took the test and wanted to see what the questions are and all that. Quite different. It's true, quite different. The, in, in the German case, there's a lot of history as it relates to the current democratic Germany. But that is very much uh, located within the European kind of development. But that's Germany, clearly. And, and 
But the, I, I also looked at some of the um, yeah. uh, the Dutch. It's not a citizenship test, this one, but but it's also the kind of courses that were provided and. You know, even there, and, and the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, they actually introduced a um, national curriculum. It was called national curriculum, but when you look through it, there's all kind of um, almost a denial of the nation as such. It's difficult in Europe. I, I try to. I mean, it's difficult in Europe to do this, you know, to claim the nation as such. It creeps in in many, many different ways, but it wasn't. It, it's not in the. Um, in the in the test, although as you would know, um, Cameron just announced that there will be more and more of uh, Britishness, or, or the, no, the, he said the history, I think, in in the test. But that's what Gordon Brown said as well. I mean, Gordon Brown tried to uh, promote Britishness, which didn't go uh, far. So I, I'm not saying that this cannot happen, or I'm not, and, and actually uh, someone who just, uh, one of my students who looked into the Danish uh, uh, test, there's much more nationalism in the Denmark case, for example. And I'm not saying that it may not happen, but at this point, you know, it's not there somehow. And, um, but I wasn't chasing it, and um, the point was that most of the tests were much more about, again, you know, uh, what I think in my mind um, uh, defines this citizenship model, that it should be very much uh, rights-based on the one hand, democracy. It may not mean anything, but that's, these are the kind of, uh, and, and also very functional um, individuals and productive individuals. In the case of Germany, for example, there's lots of questions about labor market. Have to get. I mean, these are important things for life as well. But but labor market because that's you know, very much defines the whole uh, German understanding as well. So. Thank you. I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about the distinction you made between the human rights regime on the one hand, a sort of neoliberal regime on the other hand, if I understood you correctly, and how they interrelate. Because in a lot of the literature, they do seem to be, if not conflated, but seen as very closely sort of interrelated. Well, I think that's really the point that I was trying to make, that when you look at you know, the empiric, the, the, all the kind of things that we now associate with neoliberalism, uh, you know, activity, active citizen, active um, or, or empowered individual, these are some of these ideas were there before. And when you, you know, I, I come to this, I should say, from my current research, you know, I talk to educators, I talk to people who do. Uh, the transnational level um, educational uh, frameworks and all that. You know, these were there long before. These are not neoliberal imperatives as such. And I, I, I think my point, I mean, this is an empirical point for me, but there could be a broader point as well that, yeah, I don't want, um, in that sense, human rights to be subsumed under neoliberalism. But there's lots of slippery talk about this. I mean, it comes about everywhere. And, and these are 
quite, it could be quite conflicting. But as I said as well, on the other hand, I mean, I think what makes neoliberalism successful as such is that it incorporates these ideas very strongly. And there's lots of uh, expertise, professional uh, help to that as well. So it, it, you know, these come together at some point. But when you look in terms of their trajectories, uh, maybe because I came to this you know, from a very different um, world. I mean, I looked at uh, education and, and immigration, and I didn't see your neoliberalism defining these ideas. They were there before. And this is true for uh, even you know, East Asian countries that I'm looking at now, actually, interestingly. Pursuing a little bit that point, what would you say to critics of the European Social Project as it is now by Fritz Sharp and such people? You know, eminent scholars who have uh, observed the European Union for a long time that would say these ideas that may have been there before lend itself to a neoliberal deregulation of the national welfare state for the very reason that they concentrate so much on the individual and its rights. What, why don't you say, or what would you say to those who say, well, it's not a coincidence that this moves, the transnational ideas, then move into some neoliberal deregulation project? Mm -hmm. Of course, my friend Walter would ask me about this um, question. And um, I, 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 because we did spend lots of hours discussing some of these issues, um, if I remember correctly. Um, because the alternative is bothering me. The alternative is creating bonded projects of the nation states to protect the rights is bothering me. Because I don't believe that it can be done. And I think that what's happening in, at this point is a problem. And that problem is really, it, it's just, it's not immigrants only. It's, it's against your own citizens that you are taking away. Yeah, that, that's one thing, why I don't find the alternative. Uh, that's, I don't want to say that Fritz Schrapp uh, necessarily endorses that, but much of the social democracy um, arguments sort of moves towards that. I don't see why human rights itself should lend itself, or individuals should lend itself to the neoliberal imperatives of creating uh, or burdening the individual. I don't see that. Individual rights. And that's, I think, the point that I was trying to make at the end, going back to T.H. Marshall, is that unless they are supported by institutions that make that realization possible, they don't mean anything. And for neoliberalism, it doesn't make sense. I mean, so I'm not saying that you know, by uh, supporting individual rights, you are necessarily putting yourself into danger of choosing a neoliberal tract. I just don't see the connection. And I, I, again, I don't like the implications either. I mean, you know, it's just. Also, empirically, I, th I, I really think that at this point it's very difficult to think about a um, 
very bounded nation state that can really protect its own citizens. When nation states are actually, and I'm talking about Western Europe, um, undermining their own citizens. At the top, the right hand. Thanks very much for a fascinating talk. Can I just come back to one of the points you made fairly early on about care work? I was very interested in that and how you've described it as being highly gendered, but also um, now much more uh, geared towards immigrant labor, and therefore, as you said, um, accorded a low status. And I'm puzzling a little about that, a little more, to wonder why it is accorded such a low status. Is it, do you think, because of the people who are being cared for, people who are seen to be non-productive? such as disabled people or elderly people, and therefore there may be some forms of care work that might be high status, such as people who are personal shoppers or spiritual gurus, and typically caring for people who are productive, wealthy individuals. So is it the people being cared for that will give us a clue to why this is low or high status? Um, okay, this is not necessarily my field, but it's exactly the point that you're making. That, uh, you know, uh, Excellent work has been done on this now. Um, Fiona Williams is working on this, and it, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of it. But it's it is care work is a gendered work, and it's a ethnic work now. And a lot of I mean, whereas personal shoppers, I'm not sure. I don't know if personal shoppers are um, could be considered. They would be the they would be associated with this kind of high-flying professionals. And the immigration politics and policy very much defines that kind of distinction. And that was one of the points that I uh, was trying to make, that the high-skilled immigrant and the way that, I mean, although this is changing now as well, by the way, I mean, uh, the whole crisis has changed everything, uh, or not everything, but many, many things. So. Even, even high-skilled immigrants are, um, it's not clear how much of that will be uh, part of the immigration politics. But in many ways, that distinction and, and not recognizing the work itself, which has not been recognized for you know, within the gendered category of it, and now it's passed on the uh, immigrant, ethnic immigrant. And that, that combination pretty much defines the low um, status of it. I think. Um, there's lots of, of also argument about this, how um, the um, complexity of this gender, of this care work that, for example, in Scandinavian countries, in many ways, it allows the women to take participate, uh, to, uh, participate in labor markets, in politics, when, they, when you look at studies, whereas the ethnic immigrant women are doing the work that allows these women to participate. And that's part of the argument as well. But this is not my field that I can give you more insight to it. But I, th I mean, this has been, it's been written about and it's been very much um, discussed topic as well. Uh, 
about care work, uh, I wouldn't say it was ethnic work. In Spain, yes, it is. It's Latin American people working there. But in England, in London, for example, it's people, unqualified people doing the care work. So it, it depends uh, different countries, you know? Uh, sorry, the first part, I mean, in Spain, yeah. they are in Spain not... Spain is more Latin American people doing that. But because unemployment is very high, even the Spanish people are looking for care work now. Now? Yeah, yeah. but in, in London, uh, I don't know about all England, it's unqualified people that they're, they're doing that care work. Also, a little bit of, obviously, <coughs> Latin American people or, or other nationalities, but it's also English people that they're doing their work because they are not qualified. Yeah, I mean, yeah. by the way, the point is not that the... Nations or citizens are not doing this point. It's a, the point is that immigrants are unproportionately represented in this work. Yeah, and, and this is the case in Spain as well. So I'm not saying that they, people don't do it. And, and it's, it's, you're very right that the, the differences are striking, actually. When you go to Italy, for example, much of it is in Italy uh, informal sector, and it's, you know, again, your know, excellent studies are done on this, but, you know, it does create this kind of um, continuation of existing care work at home, for example, because the government provides uh, uh, money to individual families uh, to hire. And then it is still done within families in the case of Italy, but it's done mostly um, informally. Although, I mean, again, Italian government had several uh, stages of regularization of this work, but Uh, yes, uh, thank you, uh, Yasmin, for a most interesting talk, and I, I really uh, 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 enjoyed listening to you when you talked about this kind of new conception of social cohesion, right, it's kind of based on the idea of uh, active, active individuals, so an act active individualism conception of uh, social cohesion. Um, I was just wondering um, whether we might see a uh, change back to a more kind of collective understanding of social cohesion or perhaps a, an understanding that institutions matter for social cohesion, providing safety nets for individuals now because of the economic crisis. Uh, and uh, well, we all know that this has badly affected uh, the uh, life chances and opportunities of certain groups of people, certainly young people I would say. Um, and uh, so the, the whole idea which is behind this, this I, I guess, individualistic uh, kind of grounding of social cohesion, namely social mobility, uh, that, that, that when you have active, active citizens, active individuals, they're able to shape their own lives and they, they're able to be socially mobile. That certainly now with the economic crisis, that idea, I mean, or that perhaps it, but you could say that maybe that myth is becoming ever more apparent as a myth. Uh, so, to what extent see, do you, could you see already a kind of moving back to a to kind of collective understanding of social cohesion? I mean, one would hope, uh, I wouldn't say collective necessarily. Um, it's a different kind of issue, I think, but the, the, the one would hope so that, that, that there would be more ideas about, again, institutionally grounding the idea of social cohesion. But unfortunately, I mean, I think the institutions and uh, policies, as they are embedded in the institutions, they have a long, long uh, life. I mean, you, you know, this kind of path dependencies go long. I, I, I think there are lots of ideas around. Certain think tanks are putting these out. 
it's true. Um, there are all kinds of uh, interventions of the sort. But these institutions take a long lifetime, and I'm not quite sure if there will be a very quick return. Not collectivism again, because there's lots of talk of collectivism, but some kind of effective um, arrangement which will really create the um, realization of, of the kind of rights that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, some of these uh, neoliberal uh, type of uh, policy, I mean, you know, they will take their turn, I think, I'm afraid. I mean, I, if we learn anything from sociology, institutional sociology, that path dependency goes on for a long time before something yeah, changes. I think we have time for one more question. Thank you. Um, I would like to come back to your point about the citizenship tests, if you don't mind. Um, I was also a bit surprised to hear that. And um, maybe your finding actually signifies that it is the acceptance of specific norms, of specific values, that now is the new basis of differentiation between people. That it's not actually the ethnic criterion that defines who is us and who is not us, who is them, but actually the acceptance of specific values. And uh, I, was, I would suggest that that especially applies uh, when speaking about people that are very different from what is supposed to be a classical European one. Uh, I was thinking about the case of uh, France, where uh, you also have uh, uh, integration courses and you are taught French language along with Republican uh, values uh, because that's how France actually sees itself. You are supposed to speak French and you're not allowed to wear a whale in a public, public building. So is that not a new, uh, is, not, is that not something that replaces the ethnic distinction? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, this argument is also made by Christian Jokke very strongly. Uh, that's his uh, big thing, that um, liberalism becomes this way of illiberal identity. I, you know, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I, I think there's illiberalism, but it's nothing to do with the liberal idea. So uh, those two should be separated in the, on the one hand. Um, I've just actually, you might be interested, I've just uh, published something on France um, itself, and it's, uh, but I looked at not citizenship test, I looked at school books and also the um, curriculum. And you do see that, yes, French can never leave out their you know, republic, but it's a different republic. And what is associated with republic is French, is no longer French. It's just very difficult to make an argument that you know, human rights are French. It's very difficult to argue that democracy is French. It's very difficult to make these arguments now. And that's why you know, French, despite the fact that, and, and, and even in these courses, I don't think that, I mean, they do mention, they have three hours, by the way, of this French, um, uh, Republican ideals, three hours of teaching. 
But there is something about language on the other hand. But language, I mean, can we really assume that language is an imposition? I mean, I, you know, this is quite <laughs> controversial, but I actually think that yeah, learning language is a very important thing to live in any society. Uh, so I don't want to see that as an imposition of national identity. I find it difficult, actually, that it is an imposition of a national identity. It would be if you really uh, ask the 90-year-old uh, um, grandma also to learn, then it becomes a problem, of course. But um, you know, the, the, and the way that also, again, the language issue is that it is about very much going back to you know, making yourself productive in society. Taking, you know, being able to take jobs, for example, that's the idea. Not that you should be French and speak French and learn the French culture and all that. It's, it's just not that way. I mean, it might uh, have a confidence and then at the end it might be used as a, you know, imposition. But, uh, you know, the French, I mean, the language issue is, I think it's a quite different. The, the problem is, though, in some countries, it's the, the immigrants themselves are asked to pay for these courses, and I think it's a problem. I mean, I, that, that's uh, you know, if if you want your immigrants to learn about it, you have to provide. And unfortunately, with the, all these cuts, some of these integration programs are also cut, and language courses are cut, and that's an issue. That's a problem. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for a fascinating lecture. <laughs> <laughs>